Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. This late afternoon, the trail less traveled is being recorded on top of Mount Birwa in the Glasshouse Mountains. Right now we are sitting about one or two meters from a sheer drop-off. One of my hiking companions is lounging right next to the drop-off. And on the other side, you can see eucalyptus forests, as well as macadamia farms on the other side, pineapple farms all around us. We are in the heart of the Glasshouse Mountains, looking at other summits in the area. And it's very different than the mountain ranges you find in Montana. Volcanic activity most certainly had something to do with how these mountains came to be. You can hear it's a bit windy up here. It's probably... A good 32, 33 degrees Celsius. That's for all you Fahrenheit folks, that's hot. But it's nice and cool up on top of the summit. And we're recording the trail less traveled on location here in Australia. So Mount Birwa is in eastern Australia. We are within sight of the ocean and the coastline. And I'm sitting here with Chris Rem. Chris Rem was born and spent most of his childhood south of Sydney, Australia and has been calling the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia, where we are here now, home for the past 15 years. Well, first of all, Chris, thank you so much for your time and energy joining me here climbing Mount Birwa for recording the trail less traveled on location. Oh, you're welcome. That's right. (laughs) Pretty epic hike. Can you tell the listener a little bit about uh, what we've been doing for the past hour to get up here? What's this hike like? Uh, This hike is definitely much more of a climb than a hike where the bottom is sort of very slick sandstony sheer face where you're looking for little divots to stick your hands and feet into to get up there and that goes on for way too long than is comfortable <laughs> yeah um, there was some shrubbery to duck under and then we get to a nice sort of ledge i guess with a big volcanic overhang where it's all shady and beautiful and you can relax there for a moment and then a bit more scarpering up some rocks over in the sunny side of the mountain to the very top and can you paint the picture for the listener as to what you see when you look around uh, at Australia right now? To the south of us on our right side looking out to sea, far off in the distance is Brisbane City. And it's pretty much flat between us and there. And there are just a couple of volcanic mounds. And if we crane our necks all the way around to the right, you can see the Blackall Range, small mountain range off in the distance there. And we keep tracking back around over towards the ocean looking over Pumastone Passage on the horizon is Morton Island I think the second biggest sand island only to Fraser Island and then further around to the left is the start of the Sunshine Coast which is Caloundra through to Maroochydore and we can see all the way up through to Mount Coulomb from here and between us and the ocean like you pointed out before is a lot of farming and agriculture there's forestry plantations and pineapples and macadamias and every tropical fruit you could hope for it's a very beautiful place 
Can you tell us about this mountain that we're looking at right below us? Almost, I would call it a geological feature. Kind of looks like a finger sticking up from the forest. What's that one called? All right. I'm sure I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but Mount Coon Warren. I mean, it is just a little volcanic core poking up. It's very dramatic and surrounded by a little farm clearing. Directly behind it, lined up in straight side, is Mount Nung Nung, which sounds pretty funny, but it's a pretty spectacular view from up there. But Mount Kun Warren, I believe, was pretty popular for climbers because it's just this little spike of volcanic rock sticking up. But, yeah, it's closed off to public now, so just sort of farmland around the base of it. It's beautiful. Makes for some lovely photographs. <laughs> it looks like there's a bushfire or something going on right now. What do you see over there? Yeah, I'd say it looks like it's actually in the forestry right there. So I'd say it's probably just some rubbishes because it is quite hot today and it is very windy and dry. We've had a super, super dry it's meant to be the wet season. I think we've had maybe a week or two of worth of rain. So it's been very dry for us. Yep, prime for, for fires. Now that one's blown up today in the stronger winds with the extra heat. Billowy black bushfire smoke blowing up between us and the coast. Add a little more drama to the scenery. If you're just joining us, you're on the trail less travelled, and today we're recording on the top of Mount Birwa in eastern Australia. Uh, we're going to record this interview and then we're going to climb down before it gets too dark because it's most certainly a climb that I don't want to do in the dark. We're here with Chris Rem. He grew up south of Sydney, Australia and has been spending the past 15 years on the Sunshine Coast. Chris is an avid surfer and mountain biker. We're going to learn more about that later, but now we're going to go back a bit. So Chris, my first question for you is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? Okay, so I grew up in a little country town called Mossvale in the Southern Highlands. That was in the 70s, and back then that was about a two-hour drive on the old windy highway south of Sydney. On the really cold winters it would snow there, and in the really hot summers it would be well into the 40 degrees of temperature, and I reckon it was just about as magical a place as a kid could grow up. We sort of lived just out of the middle of town on top of a hill, which was kind of sort of larger suburban lots but lots of farmland and lots of places for kids to go and do kid things we had tree houses in everybody's yards and we were on our bikes all over the neighborhood creating trails everywhere and jumps off everything and the whole town was an adventure for us so we had a little group of friends in the neighborhood and then a separate group of friends at school where we kind of got up to all sorts of shenanigans out the back of school as well because it sort of backed onto a bit of a vacant block of land but yeah most commonly we roamed the neighborhood on our push bikes and jumped them off things and had a high school down the road where we would go and ride downstairs and occasionally get up to other mischief that we got into much trouble for and building things my father was a carpenter by trade so we had lots of tools at the ready and we would build stuff everywhere (laughs) (laughs) build stuff cut stuff down build more stuff and I guess being out in the country, I, I think I was in Boy Scouts for a few years there, so there was lots of big rivers in the area. We'd go off in canoe trips with the Boy Scouts and sort of roam town orienteering and stuff like that. And then holidays, we'd be straight down the coast somewhere. Holidays always seem to be somewhere coastal. Load the car up, the whole family, and playing rock pools down in Jervis Bay and run amok. I can't remember being my parents other than being around to be parents we were kids just out doing whatever we got up to which was pretty cool to be 
sort of unrestrained in any kind of way like that. I think it was a magical place to grow up and a magical time. You know, people had enough money and there was no disease, so, you know, we had food on the table and mum and dad worked hard and everything was provided for, but, you know, we didn't have the pressures all these kids have got nowadays with their peer groups and their social medias and everything forced down their necks. It was an absolute... I said it before, just a magic time to grow up and be a kid in a pretty magic place. No big city dramas. Yeah, it was wonderful. Chris, you are a keen surfer and mountain biker. I'm wondering about your first memories of being in the oceans here in Australia. You know, just going in the ocean and then also do you remember learning how to surf? Tell us about that. Yeah, of course. So obviously country kid, uh, surfing wasn't a natural thing for us (laughs) up there, but as I also pointed out, we holidayed by the coast, so we played in the ocean a lot. I can remember as a kid on Jervis Bay down on the south coast of New South Wales, this great big protected bay, and we're out in my uncle's boat that my father had borrowed as me and my sister and one other uncle and my dad. And this huge southerly bus, this huge storm fronts rolled through, and this beautiful calm bay is turned into this wild ocean. The boat starts taking in water, so there's a crack in the hull, and my <laughs> uncle's at the back panicking about his cigarettes getting wet while me and my sister are bailing water out of the boat and my dad's just speeding this thing to the nearest shore to beach it so we don't all drown in the middle of this bay so that was one of my first major experiences in the ocean but we also had relatives in northern beaches of Sydney where there was a big lake which was popular for windsurfing and that was probably my first introduction to water sports so we windsurfed a lot on the lake there which I then tried a few times in open water but that kind of scared me a bit I was kind of in my early 20s and woke up one day and decided I'm going to be a surfer. So <laughs> I, my girlfriend at the time, I said to her, I'm going to be a surfer. And I got a couple of my good mates and I said, we're all going to be surfers. <laughs> so I went with my girlfriend. We took a romantic weekend to Coffs Harbour by train and I bought my first surfboard there and it was fluoro pink and blue and I had nothing. I had no wax, no leg rope, no wetsuit or anything. I'm like, I'm going surfing. She said, you're an idiot. You're going to die. <laughs> I'm like, it's all right. I'm going surfing. How hard could it be? And she was right. I almost died. So I didn't get it out again that holiday. We went back to Sydney. But then two of my best mates got surfboards and we started driving the hour and a half trip a few days a week, skipping off work and yeah, traveling to the beach and learning to surf. And we learned the hard way down just south of Sydney around Wollongong where it was all big big southerly ocean swells and reefs and so it was all mostly learned over rocks and some pretty hardcore locals down there that if you got in their way or upset them in any way you'd probably come back and find your car burnt to the ground and but it was fun and I think it wasn't too long after I had started surfing and like I actually started to surf rather than just being out in the water on a surfboard that I quit my job and I went surfing for a couple of years. <laughs> my relationship failed with my girlfriend, so I had way more time to surf. And, yeah, I would ring my mates in the middle of the day and say, hey, leave work, stop what you're doing, stop studying, whatever you're doing. And we had sort of many adventures up and down the coast together surfing. And I think they're all still doing it too. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Awesome. If you're just joining us, that is the voice of Chris Rem. He is a keen surfer and mountain biker. We're recording the trail as traveled here in his homeland in Australia. Australia is a very big place, so just to pinpoint it down for you, we are in eastern Australia, in Queensland, 
we're on the top of Mount Birwa, which is so high up that I actually saw an airplane down below us not that long ago. And uh, we're in the Glasshouse Mountains here, surrounded by eucalyptus forests, as well as pineapple and macadamia farms. And Chris, now I'd like to ask you if there is a experience you can share with us. Maybe you learned a lesson from this experience that you can share with the listener. All right. A lesson from surfing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I was getting pretty cocky with the surfing. I started surfing bigger and bigger waves. And I remember one winter sitting with my mate, we spent like five hours scouring the coast. There's like a massive four or five meter swell running we scoured the coast for hours for places to surf and couldn't find anything and we pulled up at one place that we normally would be happy to surf but it was huge like the waves were three to four times overhead and you know these guys were just gladiators and superheroes walking out of the surf with their great big boards and i'm like far out i want to be those guys so i surfed every big wave i could after that day to build up to that sort of thing and then a year later sort of my chance came at a different spot and it was same sort of size and I've paddled out there and there was only a handful of guys out and I caught a few sort of smaller waves I caught a bigger wave, had a good time paddling back out huge sets come through and I'm sort of caught inside where, you know, this biggest wave I thought I'd ever seen from the water it's about to break right on top of my head and I thought the wise thing to do might be to just let go of my surfboard and swim towards the bottom so I've let go of my board and got picked up by this wave and then dumped and driven to the bottom of the ocean. And I can remember watching that one wash over me. I can remember watching two more waves wash over me after I'd given up struggling to get to the top. And I could distinctly remember sitting on the bottom there and thinking, well, that's it. And I had this beautiful calm come over me and... You know, I'm just sitting there soaking in the greens and the blues and the sun coming through the water above me. And beyond that, whether I blacked out or what happened, but the next thing I know, my next conscious memory is breaking the surface and gasping for air right as the next wave is about to land on top of me again. (laughs) But there was a guy on that wave and he freaked out seeing me there. He fell off. We got tangled. He got to the surface pretty quick and dragged me up, dragged me onto my board and suggested maybe I go in because I'm pretty sure I look like I'd come pretty close to death. (laughs) So I did. I went and sat on that shore, dripping wet, sorry for myself, contemplating life in the universe. It was a real turning point for me, sort of emotionally, I guess as well as physically. Next time I'd certainly trained a lot more and surfing-wise to handle those situations better and I sure as heck never let go of my board consciously again but yeah I guess sort of emotionally and spiritually to be sitting there and looking death in the face and kind of transforms your life from that point it's like well some things matter some things don't gave me a whole new appreciation for the power of the ocean and I guess my whole life from then on sort of made more of a point to stop for a moment and appreciate what's around me and and that goes for the people around me my family and and everything like that so made everything drawn into a much tighter focus and I guess that was my first really big life lesson from the universe and I like to think I've sort of done a good job of moving on from there yeah 
beautiful. That is the voice of Chris Rem. He is an avid surfer and mountain biker living here on the Sunshine Coast of Eastern Australia. And when we come back, we're going to learn a little bit more about surfing and mountain biking and Australia. But now, Chris, it's time for a song. Is there any chance that there's a song that comes to mind that reminds you of your early childhood adventures? The first thing when you say a song from my early childhood is a BG song. <laughs> Staying alive. <laughs> and only because we would occasionally, and it was a very rare treat, we would go to a restaurant in town that was at a local golf club called the Golf Ball Motel, which had a giant golf ball on a pole out the front. I can only ever remember being there and there being Bee Gees on. <laughs> so as soon as you say song from childhood, that's the first one that comes up. G'day mate, this is Joe coming to you from the Sunshine Coast in Eastern Australia. The Trail Less Travelled podcast is sponsored by Desert Green Hemp, family farmed, organically grown, tested and manufactured in Sisters, Oregon. Desert Green grows some of the finest genetics in the world using organic and biodynamic practices to provide the cleanest and most effective CBD. The rich volcanic mountain soils, dry climate and directly sourced mountain spring waters are what gives Desert Green uniquely pure and powerful CBD products. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com and remember to use the promo code MANDELA, M-A-N-D-E-L-A. This promo code will get you discounts and special offers. That promo code, MANDELA, directly helps you and the future of Adventure Radio. This afternoon, the trail has traveled as being recorded on the top of Mount Birwa on the eastern coast of Australia. From where I'm sitting right now, I can look at the Glasshouse Mountains that are a volcanic mountain range around us. Pretty dramatic, sticking out from the earth. And then around that, eucalyptus forests, pineapple farms, macadamia nut farms. You can see Brisbane way, way, way in the distance. You can see the ocean. You can see a bushfire. And to get up here was definitely following one of my favorite mottos, which is a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt that's basically, do one thing every day that scares you. Turning around and looking down at what I had just come up and what I still need to get down as of recording this right now is pretty exciting, but I'm really stoked to actually be recording this show on the top of a mountain. It's been a while since we've done this, and we found a little nook where we're semi-protected from the wind and I'm here with Chris Rem, born and raised here in Australia. He was born south of Sydney, grew up there, and has been spending the last 15 years on the Sunshine Coast. So, Chris, before we go back to surfing in Australia and Tonga, can you tell us a little bit about your country? Okay, my country. <laughs> it's a beautiful one, and it always draws us back. It's as diverse in its people as it is in its landscapes, and... Um, I mean, there is absolutely something here for everybody. I mean, I spend my life sort of chasing waves and riding my mountain bike around the place now. And everywhere you go in this country, mountain biking is exploding everywhere, I guess, as it is globally. There's always new and wonderful and exciting places to mountain bike. Here on the Sunshine Coast, I mean, I do most of my mountain biking is focused around the Noosa area, where we have a small but wonderful and very very fun trail network up there and half a dozen different spots where you can do a variety of different riding 
you know, if you want to go for a big old drive, you can be down in the snow mountains and riding big mountains on chairlifts and get into some the Australian version of snow in the winter if you're into snowboarding in very slushy and slobby conditions most of the time on not a massive mountain. But it sort of sets us up as people that need to travel to seek out their adventures, which then sets most Australians off around the world seeking bigger and better adventures. As far as the country goes, I mean, 15 years on the Sunshine Coast now, this area feels like home to me, and I can't imagine a better climate-wise place of the country to live where it's T-shirts year-round. You occasionally get a jumper out in winter to pretend like you're cold and you need it and (laughs) throw some jeans on and a beanie because you can. You're not going to sweat to death if you wear them. But, yeah, when it's board shorts in the winter for eight months of the year and even longer and yeah it's just an outdoor activity paradise and it's the sunshine coast itself is still small country townish enough to feel like you're away from it all you really only have to head 10 to 15 minutes out from whatever coastal center you're living in and you're out in the bush as we've done today or we drive an hour south and we're in the bustling metropolis that is brisbane <laughs> and it's a short trip to anywhere i don't know i think it's a pretty magic part of the world to be in Chris, you are a keen surfer. You were telling us earlier about learning how to surf and some close encounters you've had as you've progressed. And you have also traveled to surf in different locations. I'd love to just simply ask you if you could share with us some of your favorite stories of surfing the world. I would love to. My first surfing adventure took me to New Zealand, where I'd come home from another trip and was bored three days later and just bought a ticket. And I flew to New Zealand. I got to the airport and I looked at the map at the airport there and thought, Raglan looked like a nice place to go so I got a bus and I went to Raglan and I kind of found some pretty good surf there and met some beautiful people who I'm still friends with today and I had a friend who was leaving who gave me a car which opened up more adventures and sort of traveled for four months in around the North Island of New Zealand just hunting waves and it seemed everywhere I went there was just beautiful people and magical waves and I really thought I'd never leave and I'm still not even sure why I did. <laughs> you know, I always thought I'd go back there and live. It's funnily enough, this sort of goes back to my near death because that was kind of after that and then I'd surfed some really big waves in New Zealand and I came home and I went back to the spot I nearly drowned at like a week after I got home and, and it was massive again and I went out and I surfed the, <laughs> surfed the hell out of that place and I came in and one of my friends was standing there unbeknown to me watching going, all right that was you you were the only one out there and i was just standing there admiring this marvelous surfing going down i'm like well it's a pretty high accolade from a friend who i thought was a pretty hard charger out in the surf as well but from there i um i was only working part-time and i thought you know i had some friends that were also in a similar situation and we would just work for a few months we'd have a couple hundred bucks in the bank and we'd just get in a car or a bus or whatever and we just go, we travelled up and down the east coast until we run out of money and then we'd go home and work for a few more months and then one of those times I'm like, right, I'm going to go on out to the South Pacific and I had planned to go to Fiji and Tonga and Samoa and I flew to Fiji and got out of there the next day I went straight over to Tonga and I landed in a surf camp there where I stayed for a couple of weeks and... Down the road from the surf camp was an expat family from Australia of a, a wonderful man, Shane Egan, who was an underground legend of surfing in this country. He and his brother were, you know, one of our pioneering 
surfing duos and surfboard shapers and artists and um, he kindly offered for me to keep his garden for him for however long I pleased in exchange for sort of room and board. Keeping the garden there consisted of mowing the grass and cleaning the coconuts up and keeping the jungle at bay with a machete which I did mostly successfully only almost cut one toe off with a wrong swing of a machete up a tree and the house rule was if there was surf and the tide was high enough there was no work to be done so the best reef pass on the main island of Tonga was right out front of their house and that was it I would clean garden until the tide was high enough to surf there because it's kind of a mid-tide and upwards surfing location otherwise it's too shallow there's all coral heads hanging out of the waves and it's pretty intense stuff and yeah, we'd down tills come mid-tide, we'd be out there and, and they were just sort of ingratiated me into their family life and were the most wonderful people to be around and they took me places. I had Shane while I was there. I got him to sort of drop me off on an island in the middle of the, the lagoon. Main island of Tonga has a very big lagoon with a vast amount of ocean with lots of little islands in and he dropped me off out there once for a, a week of solitude. I lived off pawpaw which grew wild on the island and I took a tub of water and a tent and that was it and... I meditated and found out a few things about myself and he came and picked me up later and we went to another island. We got chased by a cloud of mosquitoes, which was like something out of a comic strip. We landed on this beautiful isolated island, step out of the boat, walk halfway down this beach together having a laugh and it's just this cloud looking at each other going, what the hell is this? And it is literally a cloud of mosquitoes come out of the trees. <laughs> so we start running they're all over us we dive into the boat he starts it up and rips it off and we're just swatting we covered in mosquito boys it was hilarious anyway we charged off into the sunset it was a very funny moment in time but we surfed we surfed and i spent six months with them there at that time and that was through a winter where the swells sort of break only in a particular spot right out front of their house and a couple other reefs right there and then come summertime i'd come home and but the swells come down from the north and that breaks waves out on the string of sort of reefs and atolls that lay way out to sea. So I, I went home, I washed my clothes, I worked for two months and saved enough money for another plane ticket and went back again. And they were <laughs> just too happy to have their little palangi, which is a Tongan for a little white guy, cleaning their coconuts and chopping down the jungle again. And then we did some adventures to the outer reefs where we'd go in a speedboat for 45 minutes straight out to the middle of the ocean to the shipping lanes and there'd be oil tankers and container ships sailing by mainland is barely a speck on the horizon and you're surfing these most fantastically perfect not a drop of water out of place coral reefs waves and the ocean floor just drops away to oblivion below you and there's sharks and whales and dolphins swimming by and it was just a yeah incredible experience out there. I surf one wave out there where the locals don't bother because the wave is so perfectly flawless they get bored surfing it, and I don't understand that. <laughs> but they were right; it is so perfectly flawless. There was not a drop of water out of place on this incredible wave. So I did that for another six months in total. I spent twelve months over in Tonga and was like a part of the little village I lived in and would ride on the Tongan bus would turn up every now and then and on its own schedule and you'd watch the road disappear underneath your seat through the timber floorboards that were meant to be steel floor and go to town and pick up some fruit and 
get on the Ratley bus with the reggae blasting and the chickens and the dogs and the Tongans and rattle back out of town and back out for the high tide <laughs> and surf and lived on bananas and coconut and it was just the most amazing experience with the most amazing people and we're again still very very good friends with those guys and yeah that was sort of surfing in Tonga from Tonga I came home and I guess my next surfing extravaganza was Canada believe it or not <laughs> I went over for the wedding of a friend I'd made when I was in New Zealand they got married and moved to Whistler and lived in a one-bedroom basement flat and they had their pet Australian which was me who <laughs> the newlyweds kindly let live in their lounge room for almost a year and we surfed we had more surfboards and snowboards in that flat and Tim my friend there he had been shaping surfboards in Canada since I'd met him so I helped him make boards and paint boards and sell boards and every other weekend every chance we could get we'd be in Oregon or Washington or Vancouver Island chasing waves and I met the gnarliest locals I've ever met in my life in Washington state and surfed some beautiful spots and had to wait for bears to clear and snow to melt and had a wonderful foolish experience surfing naked in Washington with snow-capped mountains in the background and I swear it took me a week to warm up again <laughs> from that <laughs> and, and we snowboarded a little bit <laughs> I've never known cold like that. It was fun. <laughs> We're recording the trail less traveled now at the bottom of Mount Birwa, just above the canopy. We decided to sit on the edge of this really steep slope above the cicadas so that they are just in the distance and they're not overpowering. But that's what you hear in the background. And we're surrounded right now by eucalyptus forests on the eastern coast of Australia. And Chris Rem grew up in Australia. He was born south of Sydney and has been here on the Sunshine Coast for the past 15 years. He's a keen surfer and mountain biker. Chris, you were just talking about sharky waters and places where there are abundant great white sharks. And right here off the coast, there is a spot where you told me the other day is one of the largest tiger shark breeding grounds in the world. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Oh, yeah, so... Right off the tip of Morton Island is a, a huge breeding ground for the the beautiful tiger sharks. And I have to say, in all my travels around the world and places I've been in the ocean, that the Sunshine Coast is where I've seen by far the most sharks ever. A pretty common place to see when you're out surfing. I've had some tiger sharks that big go past that the dorsal fin was the size of my body outside of the water. I mean, that's close proximity. They're only a few metres away. Yeah, and only a few weeks ago, surfing more the open beach areas, and there was quite a large bait ball of fish with dolphins and sharks swimming through it that was moving right through where we were. So we had sharks swimming in and around us and feeding, and while we're sitting there sort of happily, well, happily, getting some waves. <laughs> Not super happy, but we were there, and everyone was in their place and doing what they did naturally. It was, yeah, they are everywhere. So down south there was the hammerheads and the and the great whites more than anything and i guess prevalent all up the east coast of australia is our fearsome little bull sharks that are sort of the ones that i think put the most terror into most people because they tend to be the most aggressive but i guess hunters of all the the ones that we see most regularly 
you can hear the cicadas in the background there kind of coming in waves. I'm going to change the setting on the microphone to see if we can handle that a little bit better. I guess it's just that time of day when the cicadas are really getting their vibe on. Yeah, they are. Let's talk about sharks a little bit and just enlighten people about a couple facts about sharks. And one thing that I think is worth pointing out is that surfers are well aware a lot of the times that the sharks are there and they're still keen to go out, even though, you know, today there was an attack off of the main beach at Byron Bay. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, well, I guess as a general rule, most surfers accept that they are in the the shark's habitat when they enter the water and... I mean, there's many elements of risk when you're out surfing, and that's just one of them. I don't think there's any surfer, well, there's certainly none that I would know, that would condone or want any shark that may take interest in them or attack them or bump them off their board or whatever to then have that animal hunted and killed. I truly believe that on the whole, surfers accept that they are in the the shark's territory or domain and accept the risk that goes along with that. And certainly the world's full of guys who've, you know, had encounters and seeing that as just their sign that most things are pretty much going to be okay. So they're happy to be out there and amongst nature. It's certainly no more dangerous than walking around the plains of Africa or, or even you know, hiking the mountains of North America, even where, you know, you've got big cats and bears and wolves and they're just there and we all accept it. It's a part of the culture and the sport or lifestyle, I guess. Right, we're sitting at the base of Mount Birwa in eastern Australia. We decided to climb down because it's a pretty steep climb to get up and it was actually all right to climb down and we're almost at the bottom here but decided to record right above the cicadas just to point out a couple of stats chris is talking about sharks here in australia and surfing the genealogy of great white sharks goes back 400 million years modern sharks go back 34 million years modern humans go back 200,000 years humans kill about 100 million sharks per year sharks kill about four humans per year And then car accidents kill over 50,000 people per year. So just something to consider, because I know that a lot of people listening are still thinking, that's nice, but I'm still not going to go in the water. And unfortunately, Chris, you mentioned baiting and killing sharks. And right off the coast here of Queensland and on Western Australia, all over Australia, there are drumlines. So for someone listening who doesn't know what a drumline is, can you tell us what a drumline is all about? All right. Essentially, a drumline is a big baited hook that hangs off a floating buoy or drum off the coast. They usually put them pretty far out to sea so they get the big animals. The idea, I guess they sell it as protecting us humans who are not two to three kilometres out to sea from the great big majestic creatures that are out there swimming in the depths of the ocean who'd be naturally hunting whatever else was out there and not a bait hanging on a hook and probably not hurting anyone. It's, a, I guess, a fairly contentious sort of issue. And I don't know how anybody can see how it has any effect on safety of people on a beach kilometres away with no other form of deterrent or of any kind between this supposed deterrent drumline hook killing thing the sharks are basically left there to die till the boat will come out with a couple of guys on board, I guess, and capture and kill whatever sharks might still be attached to it, or the dead ones are just left to cut free so the hooks can be rebaited and then just left to die or be um, fed upon out in the ocean. Seems even talking about it seems even more absurd than having thought about it in the past. It's seems it is totally 
pointless. <laughs> it, really, it really baffles me how somebody's decided that that was a good idea. And I guess the other argument the other way is that, you know, potentially drawing these creatures closer to shore with baits would have to somehow enhance the chance of them coming into contact with humans that would not normally be coming near. So it's a very interesting subject. Chris Rem is recording the trail that's traveled here with me on the base of Mount Birwa in eastern Australia. We're watching the sunset, beautiful creamy color on the top of the canopy of the eucalyptus forest. You can see... Well, you guys can't see anything, but you can probably hear the sound of the cicadas in the background as they come in waves. And we've been talking to Chris about surfing and sharks. And Chris, my question now is, what are some tips you have for someone listening who suddenly has been inspired to learn how to surf? What are some beginner surf tips that you can share with the listeners? I guess the first tip would be to relax and not take yourself too seriously because you are going to look like a bit of a clown to start with your hair will be up all over your face you'll be going over the front of the board and off the back of the board and treat it as the laugh it is because you'll have a great time and try and find some gentle sort of rolling waves and the hardest part of surfing is actually learning to read the waves and the conditions standing on a surfboard is not really that difficult learning that motion of or the feeling of that wave taking hold of you gaining momentum and staying with the wave and then sort of getting to your feet is probably the hardest thing you'll learn in the whole experience find some friends to do it with that's what i did we didn't do lessons we didn't get advice we went and bought a couple of surfboards and we had the most amazing adventures together laughing at each other spending days in the ocean and days at the beach and days up and down the coast just having adventures and learning we learned everything we learned about each other we learned about waves we learned about weather patterns we learned about the bush and the coast and we all grew as human beings and i can only hope that many many more more people get to experience that same adventure from start to finish what's one thing that surfing has taught you over the past 27 years that people all over the world are beautiful and everyone's different and everyone's got a story and that was from surfing, from traveling, because I would never have done all those travels without the surf. Chris, how do you, in Australia, protect yourself from the sun? Do you have any product that you kind of go towards, or, you know, zinc versus uh, covering up? And Gosh, I don't even know if you guys can hear me right now. The cicadas are so loud. But uh, I know that I burnt my bum pretty well the other day, forgetting about that. So what are your tips for protecting yourself from the sun when surfing? I like to go early in the morning. I also expose myself to the sun. I try and use as little sunscreen as possible. As summer's starting, or even through winter, I sunbake regularly and maintain a bit of a tan. And I know people are going to be recoiling horror all over the place. But the more tan you are, the less susceptible to burn you are. And you're conditioning your body to cope with the conditions. And I go early in the mornings and late in the evenings. But if I'm out in the middle of the day in the sun, I certainly wear, I try and go for a long sleeve shirt of some sort to avoid wearing extra sunscreen and chemicals. And obviously it's unavoidable, but zinc is sort of by far the most effective sunscreen of any kind. So always go to that one first. Yeah. I'm cringing holding my earphones right now because the cicadas are so loud. Oh, they're so loud. That's uh, beautiful. 
All right, well, before we end this segment, Chris, could you do your best to paint the picture for the listener as to what you see and where you're sitting, where you're propped up right now? All right, so my legs are dangling over the last tiny little bit of this cliff. The sun is setting to our left, so we've got the silhouette of the mountain on our left. The orange and red of the sunset is now coming through the gum trees. As you can all clearly hear, the cicadas are going crazy. They love this time of day and it's deafening. We've got an almost full moon rising up over the ocean and the few peaks of the Glasshouse Mountains that we can see from here are all bathed beautifully in the sunset light and then the flats below them are dark and gloomy so it's a very dramatic, beautiful, beautiful sight. The rocks up behind us are sort of almost glowing red where the, the remaining sunlight's on them. Yeah, even the, the green of the eucalypts is glowing red and there's our cicadas some more. All right, Chris, it's now time for a song. Right. My next song for you all is Lateralis by Tool. And there's about a zillion messages in there for everyone. And I actually use Tool to sleep to. I will put every one of their albums on repeat and I'll lay there and sleep for hours and they are my lullaby. Enjoy. This evening we're recording the trail less traveled in eastern Australia. We are in the Glasshouse Mountains right now. We just climbed Mount Birwa. Mount Birwa, Glasshouse Mountains National Park. This is the land of the Jinibata people, the traditional owners and determined native title holders for most of the Glasshouse Mountains. Chris, you are a keen surfer and mountain biker. You work at a bike shop in Noosa, which is on the eastern coast of Australia. And you were saying earlier that there's some hidden bike tracks there. And just right by from where you work outside the bike shop, you can go on some trails. And so I would just love to hear about your experience in biking and uh, how you got into it and why you love it so much. I've always had bikes in my life from my dragster as a kid and then BMX and mountain bikes when they first sort of started appearing. Done a little bit of road biking, but I guess I never really got like totally crazy into mountain biking or cycling until I moved to the Sunshine Coast. So chased waves quite a lot and got to the Sunshine Coast and it's quite renowned for very long sustained flat spells and things. So there was definitely need for another outlet so I started cycling more. I had an injury doing some surf club training where I tore a tendon on one of my fingers and was out of work for a few months and that was in my early days on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, when I wanted to go back to work I obviously had to look for a new job so I went to my local bike shop where I'd been hanging out through my injury and talking crap with the guys there and the owner of the store said, well, what are you doing with yourself? Why don't you come do a, a couple of days with us and we'll see how you go. And I'd never worked in sales or retail or anything like that before. And here I am sort of 15 years later. <laughs> I've worked pretty much six days a week since that very first day there at the bike store. And my love for mountain biking and cycling in general grew exponentially being dropped into that whole environment. I just was a, a sponge for information and... I think a couple of my far more learned co-workers were a little miffed that this nobody with no experience at anything who was just didn't mind chatting with people got a job but you know I learned from them they taught me a lot of things and I was lucky enough 10 years ago for my current employer Jeremy and Lisa Jeremy was a riding buddy 
we did a bunch of downhilling together and, and by together I mean we went to the same places and he was at the elite level and winning most things he went in and I was falling down the hill on my face and just having a laugh with the other guys he said I'd like to open a bike store I'd like you to come and work for me I want to do it different to everybody else we have to deal with where it's all about making money and taking people for all we can he wanted to make a bike shop where it was I guess no bullshit if I'm allowed to say that (laughs) and and that's what we've done we're um, based around customer service and trying to provide a good quality product and environment for people we built this business from nothing a doors opened pretty soon after the global financial crisis so we worked really really hard from nothing to build up a community and a business there and with that we sort of had a hand in a bit of stealthy trail building at our local trails which were very basic and quite raw at the time and and through a bit of that we've managed to develop that and now we work quite a lot with you know, local mountain bike clubs and national parks and it's turned Noosa into a, a destination of sorts. Our little trail network is only 30-odd kilometres worth of single track in a very small pocket of forest, but built and developed in a way that a six-year-old kid on their first mountain bike can roll out of that car park with their mum and dad and, you know, have the time of their life and so can their parents. And then we have international-level elite downhill and cross-country races in there and everybody's coming out with a laugh you know a big grin on their face there's enough challenges in there that everybody of any ability can have a good time you know it was years ago a little trail called milkmaid opened up and it was sort of hand cut in the depths of night by a wiry crew of individuals and you could sit down at the bottom of that trail when that first appeared and you could hear people laughing at the bottom of it and it's kind of exploded from there, I guess, along with the explosion of mountain biking. And we're really lucky that our store is only a 10-minute ride at most from the trails. And we can go into work early. We meet a, a regular bunch of misfits. And we go rip around the trails for a few hours and laugh at each other and fall off our bikes and rip some skids. And we all go home and hose off and go to work for the day and try and share the joy with whoever walks through the front door of the shop and that's what it's become all about for the last 10 years it's been a a very wonderful experience and it's really nice to see the work we've put in now really paying dividends for a lot of different people including the whole Nisa community now that so many people are turning up from all over the world now to ride these trails that they've heard about on the internet or read about in magazines and created quite the cool scene kids that I've worked with for 10 years they've come in as awkward pimply faced little teenagers and they're now racing national series and world cups and it's a really gratifying thing to be a part of beautiful that is the voice of Chris Rem he is a keen mountain biker and surfer based here in Queensland Australia on the eastern coast of Australia we are recording the trail I traveled right now right at canopy level with the eucalyptus forest and you can hear the waves of the cicadas as the sun sets and changes the mountain that we're sitting against different colors. Uh, this is Mount Birwa and uh, we were on top of Mount Birwa when this show started recording and then we realized we were starting to lose daylight. We should probably descend before it gets dark and I have one last question for you Chris and that is how do you handle fear? Oh dear, <laughs> how do I handle it? 
I used to run away and hide quite a lot. <laughs> I didn't do a lot of things that scared me. Again, through surfing, it's challenged me in so many ways that I view fear very differently now, and I really like to embrace the butterflies in the pit of my stomach and challenge myself in different ways. I know, you know, skydiving was something I was never, ever in my whole life ever going to do as a kid. You know, jumping off the diving tower at the swimming pools was something I wouldn't do because I hated that feeling of the, the free fall in the pit of your stomach. And then only in recent times, my um, stepson's bought me a tandem skydive for Father's Day. Bless him. So we all went around buying each other tandem skydives and we all went tandem skydiving together. And I'm pretty sure my... Um, poor guy strapped to my back was deaf by the time I was got to the bottom squealing like a schoolgirl the whole way and it was one of the most exhilarating things that I've ever done <laughs> so um, even like today like scarpering up the face of this mountain you know there's there's moments there where you've got a, a hand and a foot in a, a tiny little divot in sandstone that's filled with sand and it's not offering much traction at all but you know like to experience it and embrace it and enjoy it for what it is and hopefully you don't get hurt along the way <laughs> I know even mountain biking I was pushing myself to do bigger jumps and back downhilling there was one particular one that was quite terrifying it was quite a lengthy gap that you had to hit at a good sort of 50 to 60 kilometers an hour and it was a big square edge timber either side of it if you didn't make it you were going to splat against the timber thing and the first time over it I squealed with delight got laughed at by everybody but whatever you know I did it and I went back and did it again and then, yeah I've learned to embrace fear and I guess what's the the old quote is feel the fear and do it anyway so that's what I run with now <laughs> awesome Chris I just want to say thank you for your time and energy joining me here today on the trail less traveled the other day you took us out surfing and shared a secret spot with us and were kind enough to swim out with me when I couldn't really see my line to get out to the place where I wanted to catch waves. And unfortunately, your board had been buggered by another board coming in. And up good and proper. had a good hole in it. <laughs> yep. But then you swam out with me and helped me to get to the setup where I wanted to be. And so thank you for taking us out surfing. Thank you for taking us up to climb Mount Birwa. And just thank you for joining me on the trail less traveled. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a wonderful experience and a weird one, hearing myself talk about myself. So. <laughs> but cool to hang out with you. I've loved it. Thank you. Let's end your show with three bits of advice that you could share with the listener. Don't take life too seriously. It is fun, the whole lot of it. The one I took away from Buddhist meditation years ago was not everybody has to be a chief. Be happy being an Indian and be good at it. And yeah, smile lots. It's good for you. That's my advice. What song would you like to end your show with? Well, I had some super fancy ones all thought out, but given where we are, I can't remember the band's name, but there's a wonderful one called The Cicada That Ate Five Doc. (laughs) 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 And I hope you love it. The Trail Less Traveled podcast is available online wherever you gather podcasts. And the official website is traillesstraveled.net. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Chris Rem. Chris is a keen surfer and mountain biker based on the Sunshine Coast of Australia. 
The Trail Less Traveled is dedicated to collecting the stories and sounds from the most remote locations around the world. The show was recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, but most often on location in order to capture these stories with adventurers in their natural habitat. Tonight's episode was recorded at the top and the base of Mount Birwa in the Glasshouse Mountains in Eastern Australia. My adventure tip this week is to research a product called Skin So Soft. It's oil-based and really helps to prevent the invasion of mosquitoes and flies. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, please do something for Mother Earth and get outside. Shred the gnar. Because as you know, the thing about the gnar is it does not shred itself.